Well, hello boys and girls, sports fans and assorted waves and strays. It's Den here from Diginomica. Now, it's coming up to Easter 2020 and we're all in lockdown, but earlier in the week I recorded a conversation with Francine McKenna and uh, she's a good old friend of mine. And so here we go. How are you? I'm doing well. I'm just doing what I usually do, stay in my room and write and talk to people on the phone. <laughs> So you're holed up in Washington now, is that right, in D.C.? I've been, uh, it's almost five years now here in Washington, D.C. Better than Chicago? Is that where you were before? Uh, yeah, Chicago's home. Um, my family's all there. Uh, when this, all this coronavirus stuff uh, happened, I thought, oh, I'll rush home and be with my mother. And she said, don't come. Uh, you know, keep your, keep your D.C. bugs, with, you know, in D.C., and uh, so she's managing fine. She's 89, still drives, you know, she's living on her own in the house. So oh, she's wow. yeah, she's fine. My, my brothers and my sister are there. So, you know, they drop things off at the porch. So yeah. So why do I need to go, you know, and then I'd be, I'd be sort of quarantined with her and uh, yeah, 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 not yeah. get anything done. So. Are you able to get um, pretty much all that you need delivered to your place or? Um, I live in a nice uh, place um, on a main street and I'm within a couple of blocks of uh, Starbucks and the grocery store and everything. And so the main grocery store is still open. The Starbucks is open. There's a couple of uh, carry out places that are open. So other than, you know, low, uh, low stock on things like paper towels and toilet paper and cleaning supplies, um, you know, we're fine. It's just kind of boring because, you know, when you work at home, you, you hope for those breaks where you're going to take a walk out to the bookstore or take a walk out to your favorite cafe or something. And um, there's nowhere to go really. Yeah. We have the same problem in the sense that um, we live in a, a very small village that's, two, three miles away from any sizable conurbation as such. Uh, there's only one shop. There are three uh, bars, which are obviously closed. There's a post office that's opening limited hours. That's pretty much it. Um, we can get into town if we want to. Uh, I, I mean, I haven't, I haven't driven a car now for about six years. So uh, we rely on, on public transport and public transport here is pretty good. So we can get to town if we want to, but I mean, there's no incentive to do that, quite frankly. Um, right, I haven't been downtown DC in, in, since March 9th. The last thing I did uh, in public for anybody was March 9th. So uh, it's almost a month now that I've been sort of up here in upper Northwest DC, um, which is, you know, the people around here are educated professionals, a lot of lawyers and professors and uh, polit political people and lots of kids. So there's people out and about with their dogs. Um, but, you know, their biggest problem is, you know, the Amazon guy blocking the street. You know, the Amazon van, you know, is here like five times a day. You know, people are getting things. Yeah, deliver. Yeah. Amazon wow. hasn't stopped, although I couldn't get a delivery time to get some groceries. So I'm like, forget it. I'll just walk to the store. 
so well for the the local supermarket is really quite small there's not there's not it hasn't got a great deal of choice so there's um a number of local farmers where we are where we can get deliveries but it takes about a week right uh, any of the big supermarkets that we have over here the equivalent of your walmart or what have you two three weeks before you can get a damn thing uh, because they're so jammed up with people you know it's um, yeah. it, it it is what it is but i mean we've got a freezer full of freezer full of meat the butcher across the road is shut <laughs> um we got our milk delivered our eggs delivered we have done ever since we've lived here right um so that just leaves you know day-to-day -day bits and pieces so oh wine and beer deliveries obviously once a week <laughs> Well, certainly one of the things I think a lot of people are concerned about and should have been before, um, I had an experience um, before this all happened, right before actually uh, Valentine's Day, I went for the weekend to University of South Carolina to hear someone speak and also to go and watch uh, my nephew play baseball. He was visiting from another college and they were playing University of South Carolina and I got a sudden phone call that a very good friends who had retired, he had had a heart attack down near Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. So near Hilton Head and et cetera. And you think about all these retirement places, places uh, to go and you know, you've been in you know, other places in Spain, et cetera. They sound lovely um, unless or until uh, something happens. And then you find out that the little hospital uh, is only has four ICU beds and he had a heart attack and went to a hospital that um, you know supposedly was a center for stroke and they had one cardiologist on duty every day and so you start thinking about this accessibility to healthcare, and it's you don't have to be retired or getting up in age in general, you have kids, you have a, a chronic condition, and now we're seeing this uh, stress on the various systems and you're seeing sort of the lack of, 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 of a united states here in the United States. I mean, this really, we have 50 uh, sovereign states of depending on what your tax base is and your political situation is, um, that's determining um, access to healthcare and access to what people need in order to fight this 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 uh, this virus. It's it's really really deteriorated and broken down, even to the extent that there's these accusations of uh, the federal government arranging for supplies of various um, uh, equipment, medical equipment and selling it to private vendors who are then causing the states to have to compete with each other in order to obtain it. So those news stories have been out in the last couple of days. It's just absolutely ludicrous to have the states in a Hunger Games competing with each other to provide basic medical uh, equipment and supplies to their, uh, to their citizens instead of having a federal you know, uh, approach to the whole problem. Yeah, I mean, as you know, we have a thing called the National Health Service over here. And over the course of the last number of years, it has been defunded for all practical purposes. Yeah. And all of a sudden, they need an awful lot of people coming back in. Right. So, mm -hmm. you know, various appeals have gone out three quarters of a million um, retirees from that system have said, we will volunteer, we will come back. It's fantastic. Um, you've probably seen that our Prime Minister, Boris Johnson, has ended up in yes. ICU. Now, 
I think that one of the great outcomes of this is going to be that our National Health Service will be refunded and that our taxes will go up, but we will be glad to pay them. You know, there's this sort of center ground party called the Liberal Democrats. So they've never really managed to get a huge amount of traction, but they have for a long time argued that we should pay greater taxes um, in order to fund those kinds of things. And it has an enormous amount of appeal. But politically, on the left or the right, oh boy, just it just falls apart, you know? So I think the fact that he has ended up in ICU and hopefully will recover, um, regardless of your political position, I certainly wouldn't wish that on anybody. But um, I think we'll find that that will, will change. Do you think this, uh, it'll change for, for, the, for the states or not? Or is it just going to carry on as it has been? Well, you would think that, um, you know, having something hit so close to home, especially with the politicians and with uh, other government officials, with media personalities, which we've seen here in the United States, uh, all the way from Tom Hanks to senators to, um, you know, um, one of the Cuomo brothers who's on CNN, um, you would think that that would change people's minds, but you'd be surprised there's still, um, uh, pretty strong opposition to any kind of what what is being called Medicare for all, but which I'm still not even uh, personally um, thrilled with. Uh, I'm for, you know, uh, universal um, health care, not universal insurance. And a lot of the plans that are being proposed, even when they're talking about comprehensive coverage, are about comprehensive insurance coverage. And so even on the Democrats side, where there are a lot of people who have been moving towards some kind of universal health care or at least universal health insurance coverage. Um, you still see opposition to this because there's an enormous amount of lobbying. There's an enormous amount of, of special interest and self-interest that goes into people making a decision about whether or not they want to pay more taxes, but also um, alienate or somehow go against uh, the status quo in terms of the large pharmaceutical companies, the large hospital companies, the large health care insurance company. I mean, it, it's, it's really a, a very difficult problem. And I don't know what is going to change hearts and minds here, um, short of some kind of really uh, dramatic even more dramatic than we've already seen uh, impact of something like this. So the one, the other thing that I've seen though, is, is that a lot of private companies and obviously I, I, I focus on the tech sector, but I've seen private companies saying, Hey, we're going to donate stuff and getting on and doing that, or, you know, trying to invent new things to, to, to alleviate the situation. And, and in that sense, you know, you've got to admire the, 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 the free spirit that some of these companies have. But at the same time, I'm thinking about it and thinking, yeah, but really it ought to be the, the federal government that steps in to do these things at the end of the day, because that's the only way you're going to get a coordinated response, isn't it? Or is well, it? Well, you know, we, we have been seeing here in the United States the rise of the GoFundMe, you know, the, the campaigns via the internet for personal fundraising when people run into all kinds of uh, calamities, in particular health, uh, calamities. And people are always saying, why in the world, in the richest country in the world, should we have people have to raise money from strangers in order to pay for their child's, um, you know, cancer treatment or someone's sudden, um, you know, cat catastrophic uh, transplant uh, necessity? 
And, you know, this is the same attitude that, uh, that people have uh, towards these sort of sudden um, uh, donations by the big uh, billionaires, by a Bezos or, a, or a, a Elon Musk or something like that. Where are you on an everyday basis? Where are you when we start talking about wealth taxes, which is, you know, uh, was the position of uh, people like Elizabeth Warren when they were still running for president? Where were you then? You were fighting tooth and nail against them. You know, Jamie Dimon from City or from J.P. Morgan or other bank uh, leaders talking about how we all have to pull together. But when you're talking about more long-term solutions, even medium-term solutions to these problems that would be more, um, uh, uh, you know, erase some of these inequalities, you don't see, you see the resistance, you see heavy-duty lobbying against those things. So yes, it's very nice that people are altruistic when the, when the need arises, but it would be much better all the way around if we had a, a, a sustained effort to have, you know, um, organized ways of delivering these things. Because one of the problems with what's happening right now in the United States is we have an enormous, enormous opportunity for graft and, and fraud, for right. bribery, for self-interest, for, you know, this enormous amount of corruption. And so it's, it's to such an extent here in the United States that immediately when you hear the president talking about, let's say, uh, this hydrogen hydroxychloroquinone uh, uh, solution, medication solution, immediately we have to run to the, to, the, to the potential that he or someone close to him has a financial interest in it. We are so destroyed in terms of our trust our, in, the, in the integrity of our political figures, not just in terms of the current administration, but on all sides, that that's the first question. What's in it for them? Why are they doing this? They can't possibly be doing this just because they think it might actually help. And this is the sad, sad uh, truth that we're in right now. And I, I only hope that it isn't as bad as some are predicting so that we can get over it. And those who want to keep working towards better solutions can do that in good health and good spirit. Well, it's understandable, isn't it? I mean, I just read today that uh, three of the president's trusts have got interest in Sanofi. Well, one of those companies that manufactures the drug that you were talking about. So yes. <laughs> who's making money there then, I wonder? Hmm. Well, there's been so much of a lack of transparency to his business interests and the business interests of those um, in his family and surrounding. I think, you know, it may or may not be that that's a motivating factor. It may or may not be that those interests are material enough to change uh, hearts and minds or influence political decisions. But the point is, is that, you know, we have this sort of impression in the last three years that those kinds of things are influencing policy decisions. We've seen it over and over and over and over again, such that you, it, there's just this fatigue in terms of even bothering to investigate. It's like, why even bother? We know that that's probably true. And then you turn around and see, um, you know, eliminating inspector generals in the agencies and in the congressional oversight um, of these programs, in particular, some of these programs that are supposed to be helping people who are suffering economic distress as a result of the, of the coronavirus uh, pandemic. So 
it's, it's on all fronts that they're trying to reduce oversight and transparency. So what else uh, can, you, can you imagine? You can only imagine the worst. Aye. Right. Having said all of that, um, you and I had a little bit of a back and forth about, you know, what this means for corporate reporting and so forth. I mean, you know, in my, in my world, we're expecting a raft of uh, Q1 announcements anytime soon. Haven't seen any pre-announcements other than HP Enterprise, I think it was, that said that they're, uh, they're uh, withdrawing all forecasts going forward, right? Um, and suspending the dividend and so on. But I mean, the, the first thought that went through my mind is that this would be a great opportunity for companies to clear out the crap that they've been hiding in balance sheets for years and years and years. What do you think, Francie? Are we, are we on? Are we, are we going to see a real major clear out? Well, you know, um, there's a, there's a, that old saying about, you know, never, never um, lose the opportunity of a good crisis. And so you have um, an opportunity to distract people with one thing and do something else in the background, especially complex stuff, you know, things like changing accounting estimates or relieving reserves or, you know, writing off um, goodwill or, or, or um, uh, other kinds of intangible assets those things usually go unnoticed anyway and they certainly will go unnoticed if a company is otherwise suffering or can say that the poor results are the result of you know basically having to have the store shut or the or the plant shut or the you know the facility shut for the last month or two so of course there's that opportunity and we also don't see sort of the rush to um uh, suddenly changed the mindset into becoming savers. So there was a lot of talk here um, on the front end about all of these firms that were coming uh, with their hands out for relief. Um, and they had been giving out billions and billions in dividends and buybacks. Um, so not saving for a rainy day, not doing what they tell the average consumer to do, have six months of you know funds of cash for emergencies. The companies were paying every dollar out to shareholders and then turning around and now telling the federal government they can't survive a month. Whatever happened to the period that the times we used to have where companies like in the automotive or the airlines used to have strikes, right? Did they go bankrupt immediately because they had a labor strike? No. They knew that that was part of their, you know, the, their, their business model. They had a unionized workforce and every once in a while they could have a labor disruption and they needed to be able to get through those kinds of ups and downs. They also knew if they were in a, um, in a business that was dependent on seasonal ups and downs, um, on consumer, um, you know, tastes on whether or not the economy was running, you know, at uh, full steam ahead or it had slowed, they know that there were going to be ups and downs, right? So they needed to save for a rainy day. Well, nowadays, it doesn't happen. So the banks, you know, you would think, oh, okay. Ordinarily, they would suspend dividends, right? They would say, we're not going to do buybacks. No, we just had a, a, a news uh, the other day that they're saying, you know what? Those, uh, those dividends um, were pre-funded. We've already booked their obligation to pay out these dividends. We already have that in, in the cards. So when we look at our capital, uh, we, we have to just uh, eliminate that even though we haven't paid it out yet. So what would be the point of not paying it out? It's already been you know, adjusted for within uh, uh, our, our books. 
I mean, they'll make any excuse to keep the status quo to keep going. So when you've asked me, you know, will this sort of change some hearts and minds in terms of, you know, planning better for the medium or the long term? I don't think so. I think they're going to continue to find loopholes because there's not a really good feeling right now. When are we going to get back to quote unquote normal? So let's take advantage instead of this opportunity and, you know, make the argument to keep doing what we're doing because we don't want anything uh, to change that might change our, our sort of, um, you know, our brand or might affect our ability to otherwise raise capital or might uh, put us at a competitive disadvantage. Now I'm hearing that and I'm a simple accountant by trade and I'm thinking I don't even see the logic of that, right? No. I, I absolutely do not see the logic of it. Why? Because, you know, you, you get a bailout, right? Okay, you get, you get some money handed to you. Sooner or later, somebody has to pay for it. Right. So who's going to pay for it, right? How is it going to be paid for? And if what is you're seeing suggests that companies can quite literally just grab hold of whatever it is that they need from government or whoever, I just don't know how that gets paid for. It's like, what? I didn't know we had free money anymore. Maybe we do. Well, actually, there's a, there's a discussion going on. I'm not a big, uh, I'm not big, bigly knowledgeable about uh, this modern monetary theory, this debate over, you know, whether a central bank can just print money in order to do whatever it wants. But there's an argument saying that uh, the UK has already decided that they're going to do that, that even the, uh, even the FT has come out in favor of, hey, whatever we need to do, you know, um, you know, just print the money to do it. Here in the US, we're still going around in gyrations. You know, the Fed is still supporting the economy by buying assets, by providing liquidity to the market. They go out there and they say, we'll buy your, um, you know, your corporate bonds on your balance sheet. We'll buy your, uh, your mortgage-backed securities. We'll even buy your municipal bonds, which was unprecedented, uh, a, new, a new thing. So trillions of dollars are going out, but there's still sort of an exchange of assets, okay? There's still something that the Fed wants in return. It's not just printing money. So they're not at that point yet, but we're in this sort of weird place where um, I think it's because people don't want to do anything that sets a precedent um, if this should resolve itself, they don't want, you know, suddenly, uh, you know, to be in this position where they've done things that are, that are, you know, against their, against their better judgment. So that's, again, the reluctance, I think, in terms of changing the social contract here in the United States, um, suddenly deciding that we're going to provide, um, you know, uh, health coverage uh, for free. Although, um, supposedly there was some kind of order from Trump that um, if someone came to a hospital for coronavirus and they were uninsured, which nobody is supposed to be uninsured anymore because of the um, Affordable Care Act, Obamacare, that was passed under President Obama. But obviously there's still people who are, who are uninsured. They go to the hospital, they go, to, they go somewhere, they have no insurance and they're getting turned away for corona care treatment. And so supposedly there was some order that said, 
we'll pay the hospital directly from the federal government. Well, what is that other than a federal health, a health care plan, right? If we can do it there, then why not do it for things other than coronavirus? But again, there's this reluctance to sort of do something and have that set of precedent that, oh, it's not as hard as it looks. We have the money and we can actually keep doing this. Yeah, but you see, when you're talking about buying up corporate bonds, <laughs> yes, it's, it's an asset, right? But what, what value is that asset, yeah? You know, are, are, well, they doing due, are they doing due diligence to, to assess whether those- <laughs> Of course not. And, and, and that was the lesson that we learned from the financial crisis. Um, you know, there were, I've, I wrote a lot of articles back then, and one in particular for American Banker about this idea that did the federal government, did the US government make a profit on its investment in AIG during the financial crisis? There were discussions about whether it made a profit on its, discuss, on its uh, uh, um, investment in GM. So for the time that the federal government here owned more than you know, 80% of some of these banks and companies, um, when they finally disposed of that, okay, when they denationalized, did they make a profit? And my argument is, is that's the wrong question because that's not why you do that. That's not why the government does that. The government's accounting works differently for, for one thing. Two, it puts the assets on the books at completely different kinds of uh, terms, sometimes at cost, but not necessarily in the same way fair market value and it doesn't re-fair market value them the way a corporation would with its own portfolio or a bank would with its own portfolio. So it's a completely different set of assumptions and the underlying motivation to do that is monetary policy. It's to support the economy. It's because that's the role of the central bank is to support the economy and prevent it from imploding. Not to invest in companies in order to determine whether or not you're going to make a profit. So what do they buy the assets at? They buy the assets at whatever they think is a good price that will support the economy. They don't try to nickel and dime them and they don't try to overpay, but they do it in a way that's expedient and that allows them to achieve the policy goal. It's a policy goal. It's not a, a, an economic I want to make a profit. Otherwise, you wouldn't do it at all. Okay. What's going to happen next, as far as you can tell, uh, Francine? I, mean, I, I asked this question of everybody, and you know, we're all trying to figure out what part of the crystal ball we need to look at. But is it possible to make any kind of prediction at this moment in time or not? I think it's really difficult to make a prediction, in particular because I think... Um, not only are different countries having different experiences with this with this um, uh, virus and and where we're at in the in the in the timeline, but here in the United States we have 50 states that are all at different places, and again we have this unfortunate sort of Hunger Games competition between the states to gain uh, resources for their own citizens. So I don't think that we can really uh, tell. What's really troubling is that Congress is sort of out on recess here. So there's not active legislation or legislative activity. There's a lot of speeches, but they're not meeting because supposedly they can't meet in person and they don't have the rules set up in order to do business remotely. So you have this really, you know, horrible vacuum 
of activity that um, the, the Trump administration is taking advantage of to push things through. I think we can only pray that this crisis um, uh, subsides and we can get Congress back in action. And again, we can get people who um, are thinking about what's happening. We have an election for president coming up in November and hopefully that will happen. Um, and we'll get a result that uh, will, will allow people to start working again on, on repairing the damage that, that's occurred. But I don't think companies or anybody else is gonna change their usual, um, their usual uh, approach. They're all, I think, unfortunately, taking advantage of the opportunity. And we're going to see um, a lot of stories coming out uh, of the woodwork um, two years, three years out, just like we did with the financial crisis. So that's an interesting perspective because as we look at what's going on over here and endeavor to try and understand what's going on elsewhere, I 100% agree with you that impacts vary from place to place, no question about that. Um, and obviously, in, in the US, I can see that, like, it's pretty bad up your way. It's absolutely awful in New York, um, South Dakota, if anybody ever goes there, right? You know, not too, too bad. So obviously, it will vary. But what I'm starting to come to believe is that we will see fundamental changes. We'll see fundamental changes in the way that we work. We'll see fundamental changes in the choices that we make around travel, for instance. Um, we think that the, that the, the days of the massive in-person conference is, is done. We, we just don't see that coming back or in any, any, any real way. We think that there's going to be some very, very big um, changes that, that do strike at the heart of how the economy behaves. Now, what, those, what impacts those have, anybody's guess, yeah? But we think that those are the kinds of things that are, are going on. And the reason that I think that is, is, is several fold. I mean, I spend a lot of time talking to vendors in the tech industry, the same as you do in, in other areas. And I'm, my only question is, who's buying what, right? Is anybody buying anything? They're in, they all seem to be saying the same thing, and that is, is that people are very interested in finding how to operate new ways of working yeah so the whole outsourcing industry for example is totally newt in in india and the, and the far east they can't they can't work from home generally speaking so they're scrambling to do that i know of one bank where they had to acquire nine thousand laptops in like a week in order just in order to keep keep going right that begs questions why do you need nine thousand laptops what is your call center actually doing could you do things in a completely different way? What would that mean for the quality of service? Lots and lots of potential questions being asked um, that suggest to me that, that significant change will happen. And the reason for that is not because this is an economic downturn, but because this is a global pandemic where everybody's impacted. And it's because of that global impact that I think things will change. I, 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 I do agree with you. I do agree with you there in terms of the... Um, working remotely and using technology in order to be smarter and to be more cost-effective. Um, every single conference, every single speaking thing that I had scheduled for the next three months is canceled. 
I will tell you though that there's been a couple of them where they've either asked me to develop the presentation online and presented via one of these new technologies or to um, find a way to um, uh, do that uh, in some other virtual way. And so that's been sort of the, the, the innovative schools uh, and, and conferences, but some of these big conferences, I don't know, how can they justify rescheduling some of these things? And you see it also with the workplaces. So for example, we saw the news today that WeWork, uh, a couple of the independent directors actually sued um, uh, SoftBank, the funder, because they didn't fund. They didn't give uh, some money, uh, buy some uh, uh, warrants that they said they were going to have. So you have these uh, business models that were kind of screwy to begin with imploding upon themselves. What's gonna happen, okay? WeWork was supposed to be some remote work arrangement, but basically it's just a substitute for an office, right? And you have all kinds of organizations like media organizations. I've always been a work remote person, right? I've been able to work remotely no matter what, whether I had a full-time job or whether I was freelance or whether I was independent, because you know that's just how I'm wired. But many of my friends and colleagues in media, um, this is the first time that they ever had to get a home office set up. It's insane. It's insane. When you have a job that can easily be done from anywhere, should be able to be done from anywhere, actually is better if you can do it from anywhere rather than sitting at a desk. And this was the first time that many media organizations figured out how would they operate if they actually had the majority of their reporters and editors not sitting all in a big newsroom. They did not, they were not prepared, they did not have the technology. And I think about, you know, something we've talked about over the years, contingency planning. You know, I went through the Y2K contingency planning with JP Morgan in Latin America. We were yeah. planning for the possibility that the whole trading floors would be taken out by Y2K issues with, with uh, the electric, electrical grid or power or water or some other service. What happened to contingency planning? Maybe we couldn't have foreseen a pandemic, but there are plenty of other things that many of these companies have faced, whether it's hurricanes or earthquakes or um, a power grid or something else, terrorism, for gosh sakes, unfortunately. We have to think about terrorism. What if we had a terror threat to the newsroom here in Washington, D.C., and they told us, you cannot come to work today? How would we put the news out? And yet, we had not gotten to that level of planning in many organizations. And so I agree with you 100%. This forces that thinking. I will say, though, that um, I had a conversation with my sister about the organization that she works with, and I won't say the name because I don't want to embarrass them, but um, she works for an organization that does some things that she thinks um, are right for change, the way they're doing it, right? Some things that don't have to be done in person, that can be done remotely, where they can take advantage of other kinds of ways of doing things. And she's been trying to raise this issue as they've been on these virtual calls and these meetings and saying, we have six months to think about how we might take advantage of this opportunity. So think about it from a positive perspective. Let's take advantage of this opportunity to change the way we're doing things 
And we can use the excuse of the coronavirus crisis that we cost cutting, you know, streamlining, we lost people, you know, we have to rethink our, the way we're doing things. And she's still seeing intransigence because people are inherently resistant to change. They want to do the regular job. They don't want to do that extra work of rethinking and taking a risk. And they would rather just hold their breath and cross their fingers and hope that they can get back to normal and just keep doing things the way they're doing. It'll be those really innovative organizations that not only uh, that take advantage of this situation to learn from it and to rethink and to say, hey, you know, we not only have to do things differently because stuff like this happens, but we should because it makes sense. Yeah, I, I, I'm really pleased that um, my organization, we, we were built digitally from the get-go, yeah? There was just no way that we could, uh, we could not, um, we couldn't meet in an office, right? Because one of my guys is 4,000 miles away in your neck of the woods. Um, I have other people who are further over, yeah? I have people at the other end of the country, I have other people in other countries as well. You can't have an office, it doesn't make any sense. Right. And so, but, but we found ways of being able to work remotely. We meet every week, we, you know, there is a must turn up to this one hour conversation every Monday at four o'clock in the afternoon our time. <clears throat> and um, we meet twice a year. We actually get everybody together twice a year. We, we physically do that. Um, and the, the fundamental reason for doing that is so that we all know that we're alive, right? We're not actually doing anything. Right. Yeah. I mean, it would be wonderful to think, Hey, we just had a strategy date. No, we didn't. We just sat down and said, hello, you know, and thank goodness we're all here, here and alive and one thing, another now let's go and have dinner. Yeah. Right. Um, I don't think we'll be doing that. This is, we normally do it in July time. I don't think we'll be doing it this year for some reason. don't know what that might be, but, <laughs> um, yeah, but I, I mean, w everything else is digital. So um, there's a lot we can share and there's a lot we are sharing with people. I, I've been quite surprised at the number of firms who said, okay, we've canceled the in-person event, we'll go virtual. And then a matter of weeks later, they say, uh, we're canceling the, the virtual event because they don't know what to do. Right. They don't know how to put it together. They don't right. know how to make it in any way authentic. They have no idea how to make it spontaneous. They don't know how to have virtual meetings such that you can hold a, a, a decent conversation with somebody. They just don't know how to do it. It's like, well, it's been interesting on the education side. You know, I teach, uh, I'm an adjunct at American University here yeah. in Washington, and I teach in the MBA program. And from the beginning, for the last three and a half years, I've been doing it in the online program. So when I started teaching, I thought, oh, I'll teach in a classroom. Oh, you know, I'm finally at that level, the prestige of, you know, teaching in a nice classroom here in DC. And they offered me the online class and actually international business. So I'm not even teaching accounting, right? I'm teaching international business. And so I've been doing that at American for three and a half years and they have a wonderful setup. And we use the same tool that we're using today 
and we have a really wonderful content learning management system that sets it all up and the students know exactly where to get everything. Well, when this happened, suddenly the rest of American University had to figure out how to put all of the in-person classes online. And I raised my hand, right, as part of the online faculty. Anybody who needs an extra instructor, anybody who needs an extra tutor, you know, nothing, right? Because I'm over in this silo of the online program and all of these people who were in the in-person uh, educational programs who were probably the people who had resisted the whole time ever teaching online, right? They were tr the traditionalists and they were gonna create their own process. And I, w I hate to tell you, but they actually designed the online uh, transition for the live classes using a completely different platform. Does it work? I don't know because I teach in the online program. So it's going to be interesting to see because they didn't take advantage of any of the learnings or experience uh, or, or staff um, on one side of the university who had been doing this now for you know five, at least five years uh, in some cases. And didn't, didn't the, sorry, didn't, didn't the, the dean or the chancellor or whoever it is it would be the equivalent of a CEO, didn't he just turn around and say, hey guys, look, these online folk have been doing this, so why not? I don't know. And this is the silo situation. So I think that, you know, education is, is, is you, know, re, re, you know, has a reputation of being very bureaucratic, right? You know, the bureaucratic academics. But I think a lot of organizations obviously have the same problem, big, you know, corporate organizations. You have people doing innovative things in one side, and then you have other people who have no idea that that's going on. And unless you have strong leadership, you're not gonna have that opportunity for people to learn from that experience. Um, media organizations, I mean, I was set up. I worked for five years at MarketWatch. I had my laptop, I could work from anywhere. I had VPN, I knew how to do everything. And there were people in my own group who did not have any of that and would not have known how to do that if they had to do it in a hurry. And so, you know, this is, it's about individual motivation sometimes, it's about technical proficiency sometimes, but it's also about the silos that organizations build up and hopefully we'll see that breakthrough in some cases and we'll see, you know, um, higher adoption of some of these tools. I will tell you though, what we are seeing also is that some of these tools that you and I like, that you and I use, that we may have become accustomed to, they may stress at the higher volumes, at the higher uh, usage. They may stretch uh, and, and, and crack when you start having uses that they weren't intended for. And we're already seeing those um, issues surface with regard to privacy and other kinds of um, uh, issues in some applications. They weren't designed for the use that people want to use them for. And you have a problem because they're having to adapt very quickly in a, in a period of crisis where they've got enormous volumes, you know, running through and we might see some cracks and hopefully that won't dissuade people from, from using the tools. Absolutely not. I mean, you know, as far as I'm concerned, this is, this is a great way to communicate and um, it's, it's, it's just part of life as far as I'm concerned. 
so I, I just don't have a problem with it. I just hope that the strategy guys don't get hold of it because history teaches me that, you know, strategy is the place that you go when you want to kill a great idea, right? <laughs> But uh, you're 100% you're right about silos. I mean, you know, we have this expression over here when these things happen. If it's not invented here, then it wasn't invented, right? And um, that, that, keeps, that keeps those silos well and truly walled off from one another. But I am seeing signs where, where that is changing. I mean, um, a very famous German company that you and I both know. Um, I was talking with their, their CEO recently and I said, you know, you've you got to put a stop to this not invented here thing because they're really famous for it right mm -hmm. <laughs> and um and he said yeah he said i know and he said and this was before all this stuff became you know sort of as big as it has and it would appear that that's now become something of an imperative so we'll see how that we'll see how that works out because it ain't worked out too well in the past that's a dead certainty <laughs> it's all about leadership as you know it's about you know the the the, the leadership at the top the tone at the top that says you know, we have to talk to each other. We have to break down these barriers. It's absolutely essential. It's mission critical. And, you know, get rid of your old, you know, biases or, or, or uh, you know, problems with sharing um, the competitiveness that causes people to, you know, to, 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 to hide knowledge. Um, you know, it's what we used to, you know, try to do in change management, uh, not not always successfully in some organizations, but you at least try. And unfortunately, or fortunately, in a crisis, you have a really good excuse for maybe trying a little bit harder. As I said, you can get away with good things as well as bad things uh, in a crisis. And so I'm, I'm hoping and praying that more organizations um, um, uh, uh, try new good things um, in, out of necessity than take advantage uh, to the detriment of employees and shareholders and communities. Well, we may, we may yet see that miracle occur, right? And it would be a miracle as far as I'm concerned anyway, but we'll, we may. You know, I, I, I think that um, nothing concentrates the mind like a near-death experience, right? And this is looking increasingly like a near-death experience. And I think back to the, this is many years ago when IBM nearly went bankrupt and had to change absolutely everything. And, and, and that, kind of, that kind of worked. Um, I mean, we could get into a debate about how well it's worked recently, but that's another story. But the fact of the matter is, is that they, they had a near-death experience. Apple had a near-death experience and it ended up working well for them in the end. Um, I'm just hoping that this particular form of near-death experience, if that's even an appropriate way of putting it, is, is going to encourage us to think rather differently and perhaps a little bit more collaboratively. Because, you know, what's not to like about doing that? Yeah, What's not to like about well, working collaboratively? Certainly that's happening on an individual level. Again, yeah, yeah. out of necessity, because you have an enormous amount of unemployment. So here <laughs> they're talking about, you know, we're going to go up to... 12, 15% unemployment before, uh, before we start subsiding. We had 6 million people file for unemployment last week. Um, so what do people do out of necessity? Okay, you and I, we hustle, right? We figure it out, right? We're resilient. We, we get a new gig, right? We figure out how to be independent. And so a lot of people are going to have to sort of 
figure it out. They're going to have to figure out how to do something different and they're going to maybe learn something new. They're going to take a class during this downtime. They're going to do something they always wanted to do because they don't have any excuse anymore. The safety net has been pulled out from under them. And sometimes that's what it takes, that kick in the tail um, to get some people to do what they've always wanted to do. Um, I saw uh, an announcement, um, one of the, a famous uh, journalist, Matt Taibbi, who writes for Rolling Stone, um, yeah, yeah. just announced that he was leaving Rolling Stone and he was going to uh, write a newsletter on Substack, right? And, you know, it's announced as some brilliant move that he's going to be untethered by major media, corporate media, and he can write whatever he wants and take responsibility for his own thing. Well, welcome to the club, Matt. Um, <laughs> Some of us have been doing that for a while and taking the consequences of our actions. And uh, I think, again, you know, if, um, you know, if crisis uh, creates necessity to actually live, you know, the life you want to live, um, then I think that can, uh, that can be hopefully soon a positive thing for some people. People will escape sort of the idea that they have no choice or they couldn't possibly give up because it'll be taken away from them and they'll have to maybe think through uh, alternative choices. Well, that's a great place to stop, Francine. That's, uh, that's, that's a great message. It's not one that I, that I hear terribly often. <laughs> and, it's, and, and it's wonderful to hear it coming from you. <laughs> well, you know me, I'm like, a, you know, like a, uh, just always resurrecting, right? Something new all the time. And uh, it takes a certain amount of courage. It also takes a certain amount of resilience and, and uh, lack of risk aversion, um, but also some faith. And I will say that despite, you know, sort of being a little bit, you know, pessimistic about some things, um, one thing I always have is faith in the individual spirit um, and so hopefully that all those individual spirits collectively will move us forward once this cloud is, is gone. Are you going to continue rattling the cages of corporate America and elsewhere, of course? Even